everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, the podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, it's going to be pretty cool for us. We're going to talk to Micah Niebauer, who's the CEO and co-founder of Southern Pines Brewing in Southern Pines, North Carolina. It's cool because Micah, Ben, and I met at business school a few years ago, and uh, we've stayed in touch ever since. Micah is a Green Beret like me. He left the Army after 11 years to start a local brewery with some of his teammates. We actually got to talk to Micah at his brewery, which recently reopened after COVID. We're going to talk about his time as a young officer in the 82nd Airborne and then moving on to become a detachment commander in Special Forces. We're also going to talk about transition out of the military, of course, his challenges of entrepreneurship and how he's using his business to strengthen his local community. The morning we graduated from our brewing course, wake up that morning, get a call from the bank that our loan had been denied. We're not getting it. And we're like, oh. And it was just such this gut punch to think, oh man, who knows what's going to happen. So we're here with Micah. <laughs> we're, uh, we're in your office, in the brewery, we're on site. There's people in the brewery. Are you breaking the law or did they let you let people in the brewery finally? No, we're fortunately al- allowed to bring people back. Not everybody, but but half, half the people can come back in. So we're uh, oh, okay. excited to be at that spot. Okay, great. I got to uh, I got to get this burning question about beer out. Oh, I mean, we have several. It but doesn't have to be the only one. If Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada, if I can get them anywhere that I get Bud Light, what makes them craft beer? What makes craft beer craft? So, by definition of the Brewers Association, you have to be independently owned, which means that you cannot have more than twenty five percent ownership from a major conglomerate. You have to use traditional methods to make beer, okay. which involves, um, for them, on a much larger scale, the same equipment we have out here in the brewery, where you're using um, old traditional methods, a mash tank, a louder ton. And then you use you know, traditional ingredients, flavorful ingredients. And it's all about flavor and, and bringing a lot of different styles and tastes to people. So those are really the, the three things. It's ownership, your brewing methods, and the beers you're making are kind of what define a craft brewery. And it's a moving target. Okay. So really? Oh, every every year the Brewers Association kind of tweaks the definition of a craft beer um, craft brewer. I think everyone always says the the biggest you can be to be a craft brewery, but however big Sam Adams is, and that's the that's the definition of the largest you can brewery you can be. Okay, it's like copyright uh, with Mickey Mouse. Yeah. However old he is. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) All right. That's good. So Blue Moon is like a fake craft beer. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Really smart guy made Blue Moon, awesome background, PhD, studied in Belgium, made an awesome beer, but um, fake craft beer, though. Fake craft beer. If no it was in a different can, would it be craft beer? No. According to taste? It falls totally within the taste spectrum okay. and style, but ownership is out. And so it, it's so very it's interesting. just the ownership thing. The ownership thing is the big problem. It's Miller Coors brand, so it's, a, yeah. it's not a Blue Moon brewing company. It's, uh, it's Miller Coors. And so it's, what's interesting is that what, positively what craft beer has done for America, it has brought flavor and many, many choices to consumers. You know, back in the 70s, there were about 40 breweries in the country. It's crazy to think that just that long ago, we went from 40 to over 8,000 now in that amount of time. And so, it, you know, the, what it means to be a craft brewery, you know, I think some consumers care about something like ownership and the independence of a brand. So many other industries, that would be considered a success 
versus in craft beer, you know, you're liable to get unfollowed and no one will like you if you've been acquired. That's you've sold out, and so it's very, it's a very interesting industry from that standpoint. You get punished if you get too successful. You're like a punk band. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's right. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is a podcast about military transition, life after. Yeah. So we got, we got to take a couple steps back in time. Sounds good. You probably tell this story a lot, but just give me the story about a bunch of guys on a special forces team sitting in a team room. You're all home brewers. Where did the, where did it go from there to breaking ground? Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's funny. I think you you already got it wrong on how it started, which I which I love because that's, that's I think you know, everyone's kind of assumption. I planned that uh, exactly. Perfect, perfect segue. So you know, I think so many people ask you know like, oh, were you guys you know all on the same same team in a foxhole in Afghanistan and and, and telling yourselves like, if we ever get out of this, we're going to open a brewery and. And it wasn't that at all. Um, yeah. you know, I was just thinking that we always drank in our team room. Yeah. So it's more of a team room than a foxhole oh, thing. Oh yeah, no, and and that's uh, that, you know, and that's the for uh, our team room fridge was stocked full of beer. I mean, that's where I developed a love for craft beer. So set the record straight. So set the record straight. Yeah. So you know, myself and Jason Guinness, John Brummer, were all on the same detachment and third group. We're on ODA three two one six together. Um, Jason and John did a couple deployments to Pakistan, Afghanistan. I joined the team on the Afghanistan deployment and had an amazing time. It was the best jobs I've ever had in my life and, and yeah. loved it. Got back after deployments and those guys left to go to instructor positions and in the special warfare course teaching guys. And I was still the detachment commander for a little while, but I was getting ready to have to transition into my next job. And, and for me, there were no more fun jobs left of getting to be out with the guys doing fun things. And, and I think I'd, for all three of us, and I know for myself, the idea of becoming an entrepreneur just seemed like such an incredible part of the American dream. And honestly, I always felt that how could business replace serving my country in the military? And I was like, how could any of that even be exciting? Like I wear U.S. Army on my chest and an American flag on my shoulder. And, and you find you know so much sense of pride and purpose in that. I was at Partners in Progress, which is our local economic development group here in Southern Pines, and they brought in an angel investor to speak at an annual banquet. And I got, my wife got invited, I came along with her, and um, and they had angel investors talking. I thought, never heard of an angel investor before, I have no clue, right? And, yeah, or it's uh, like someone to the rescue or something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so he starts talking about all these businesses he's invested in the state of North Carolina, and, and just the state of business here, and one of them was Lone Rider Brewing Company up in Raleigh. And that to me was this catalyst moment of like, man, I like beer. I mean, I made beer once with a neighbor probably, um, which just sat, sat around watching a pot boil. But I thought our town doesn't have a brewery. Like this could be a lot of fun. Got home that night and I called up John when I was walking up and down my driveway being like, this is what we need to do. Like we need to, we need to build a brewery here. And so that kind of started us down that path. And I think for all three of us, where we were at was that, you know, the days of deploying were over for us. And, you know, that was what was fun for the military for us. It's the reason you joined, right? Yeah, that was it, right? And and so the idea of entrepreneurship and starting a brewery wasn't like an escape from the military. It was saying, man, the exciting part, the risk, the the rush, the entrepreneurial aspects of the military really happened on a deployment. Those were gone. And getting out of the military and starting a business was pursuing the same exact thing in life here. Um, And and a whole other kind of vein it looks completely different smells completely different but it is the same thing as getting to go on a really long patrol or deployment yeah and how many years did you spend in 11 years 
11. So there were people probably saying, man, you're halfway there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's going to become a theme on a lot of these episodes. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> halfway is a good point to, uh, to get out. You know, it was very interesting. I remember the day I resigned and it all happened very quickly coming up with this idea. And then I ended up getting orders to go to ILE. I was the headquarters company commander for third special forces group at the time. And I got orders to go to my major course end of the year. Yeah. And I thought I had six, seven, eight, nine months before I changed station to be able to figure out would the brewery work or not. And one of my friends who did human resources in the army told me, do you realize 30 days after you receive orders, if you don't turn them down, the army tacitly, you tacitly accept them and the army can hold you to going to that change of station. And I was like, whoa, I I had like three days left before the army could hold me to something happening later that year. And that was the, the trigger point for me. And all of a sudden I have three days and we sat and talked to the guys. It's like, let's do this. And it's either now or never. If we, you know, John had promotion orders. I had, you know, these orders. And it was, if we take those things, we got another three, four years in the army. And this idea is gone. And telling people, you know, when you're at the 11 year mark, it was a very, very wide array of responses from people all the way from just, I think, incredible excitement from people. I remember our, I still remember Colonel Paquel, our group XO at the time, first person I told. And, you know, he couldn't have been, more excited for me and happy. First wondering, is everything okay? Like, why are you getting out? And then that's awesome. And that's really exciting. And so it yeah. was a you lot of the, tough you conversations. You have the spectrum of people who are almost jealous for you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, jealous of you. And then you have the people who are trying to be level-headed, like, well, man, the benefits are so great. And then you have the people who just, it's beyond their imagination to not take it to retirement. Right. Yeah. No, and then you're 11 years in, like only nine years left. Yeah. It's so easy to just say there's only blank number of years left in the Army, and it could be 12 or 15 or yeah. 8, you know, whatever that number is for people. And to your point, there's so much to be said for what the military provides. It's a you know, stable job, a great income. The pension is for real, like getting out of the Army, not having health care. Yeah. I think is also this, what do you want to do with your life? You get one one life, you have no idea how long it'll be. And to say, like, ah, do this for 12 years. I can do this right. eight more years. Yeah, it's, it's, you I do always, a lot in years. You can do a lot in two yeah. years. I always kind of think of, like, when someone says, yeah, my grandfather served in World War II, and then he went on to do this, right? Mm-hmm. The people are more interested in my grandfather, like, went overseas and fought versus spent the next, you know, 15 years just, I don't know, not sticking yeah. around. I don't want to demean it, but they built economic progress in our society after the war right no and i I think you know you're talking about those contrasting people i think some of the people i respect the most from the military like two people paul rivers was my team sergeant he's currently a sergeant major deployed downrange and then kurt brinker who ended up you know going on to be a battalion commander in third group and those are two guys that i felt like they loved the military duty honor country and they were happy to serve in any capacity they were asked and it was incredible to be around people like that. And, and what I, I felt like on the other side of it, I think the military often talks about selfless service yeah. as, you know, and people are willing to lay down their lives for those around them and to do their job. But I think what was even harder for me to kind of comprehend is, am I willing to throw away my potential? If I get slated into this job or I don't make it into here or this is the path the Army wants me to go down, yeah. am I willing to selflessly serve 
regardless of my own dreams, aspirations, or what I think I may be capable of in life. And and what is amazing to me is that I feel like I've had this opportunity to see some people that are, are so selfless that they're willing to even sacrifice that for our country and the military. Yeah. And it's humbling to be around people like that. Yeah. And some people just love the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like, they really do love it. There, there are some people who want to contribute, uh, you know, their patriotism, give back, mm-hmm. and they want to do the exciting stuff like we got to do, right? Yep. Like, go overseas, fight a war, feel feel good about yourself, you're, you're doing your job. Yeah. But I'm not loving sitting around on post for, <laughs> you know... Um, doing anything or, or, that, yeah, that you're doing there. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you got what you wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. And there's the rest of life. Yeah. Yeah. So... Taking it back before the military. So there's another interesting thing that you said before we started recording. So our first guest was from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You're from Wisconsin. Yeah. And the guy we had planned to have as a third guest is from Wisconsin, but we had to book someone else instead. You said, I was like, man, top, like, one, two, three from Wisconsin leading off the order. You said you weren't surprised. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I felt like I got to meet so many fascinating people in the military from Wisconsin, even on my own team. And and what was interesting to me is I didn't grow up being around a lot of military people, but I, I just think, boy, I ended up having so many cousins serve. One of my big, two of my big reasons for wanting to even be in the military, one of my uncles, my Uncle Bill, um, was a retired command sergeant major. He was in the Vietnam War, gunner in a helicopter. And I, I still remember as a little kid, I wrote him a letter. I typed it. It's probably the first letter I ever typed. And, nice. and I wrote him this big, long note, as long as I could to being, you know, seven years old or something. In the end, I wrote, P.S., would you please send me some of your Army stuff? And he boxed up this big box full of uniforms and patches and pins and all of these things. I still have all that. Yeah. And then I think, you know, growing up, having my scoutmaster, Dave Thompson, was one of the first SEALs in the Vietnam War. He just was just such a fun person for me to be around. And I had these people that I respected a ton. And I think what's interesting in Wisconsin, without having major military bases... There's so many people that served, and you may not even know it because they're all back doing their lives in some way. Do they just like the outdoors? Outdoors? I mean, they're <laughs> farming. They like fishing. They're just good salt of the earth, hardworking people. Yeah. You know, like if you live in Wisconsin, you're outside a bunch. You can, I don't know, you're just you, salt of the earth people. Hardworking, don't take shit. So you had some people in your family who were had a bit of a military background, but what was family like? And I say that because I read an article that you did for Wharton. You said, you said being an entrepreneur is going to generationally change the, my family's trajectory. Mm-hmm. So what did, it, what did it come from and where is it going? Yeah. I, I love to think about that just from a, a big picture standpoint. And, you know, my great-grandparents emigrated to this country, you know, and I'm you know, Polish, German, Slav, yeah. all from wherever, Austria, and settled all in Wisconsin. And... They were all farmers or worked in sawmills. Most everyone was farming, you know. My my mom grew up and went to the same one-room schoolhouse her dad did. They had the same teacher that, you know, and tiny, tiny little thing. And so I had my mom go to a one-room school in Wisconsin. My mom ended up becoming a teacher, and so did my father. And, you know, for me to be able to go on to college and then also to become a military officer, I think was just a neat thing for me to be able to do to say, I don't think I would have had all the opportunities. I know I would not have had all the opportunities I've had in my life if I would not have joined the military. Yeah. And I think the military took, for my generation, my ability to 
you know, turned me into a more respectable person, allowed me to, you know, trick my wife into marrying me and, and <laughs> elevate my status. And then it makes me even more excited just for the experiences I've had now that can be normal and what my kids experience as they grow up. And I'm excited to see what kind of the next generation of Niebauers may end up getting to be. Yeah. Well, uh, what, what subject does your father teach? He's an English professor. College English Lit was his big thing. And I hated English growing up because he would look at every paper I'd write, yeah. tell me I wrote wrong, tell me how to... And I just hated it. And it wasn't until sometime in college where I finally was like, all right, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll accept this now. And uh, so, and it's my highest praise if you ever read something I write and tells me I did a good job. That's, uh, yeah, I've, I've arrived at that point. Yeah, and your mom? My mom, uh, you know, was a hardest year of my life was fourth grade. She was my fourth grade teacher. <laughs> I, t- I probably cried more that year than any year of my so life. So she teaches everything. Yep, yeah. and she okay. eventually became the administrator of a little school. I went to a tiny school in Wisconsin. There were 11 people in my graduating class. So it was a small school, about 120 kids, preschool through 12th grade. Yeah. And I yeah, saw my mom every day there. So when you got to college, did you do ROTC? I did. Okay. But it, you didn't go to service academy nope. or military school? No. Nope. So what was that like? ROTC was lame to me. From I'll just <laughs> okay. say that. I, I rode on the crew team at school. I did cross country and track. College was a ton of fun. And... I, I was just so surprised to all of a sudden have somebody a year older than me wanting me to call them sir, but they're not really... To try to pretend to play Army in college yeah. was just kind of a, a bizarre thing for me. And so, yeah. and I... It's puzzling how you ended up in Special Forces. Right. <laughs> Master Sergeant Mayberry was one of our cadre <laughs> members, and he was, a, he was a Green Beret. And I was like, I like Master Sergeant Mayberry. I was like, I, this, is, this is the route to go. Yeah. You know, and as I was in... I started school in 1999, so I was... Yeah, I graduated 2003, so I was in college when 9-11 and everything happened. And, yeah. and I, you know, and that, I was like, man, if I'm going to go in the military, like, I want to be in the military. Did you do ROTC as a freshman or after 9-11? As a freshman. Okay. And honestly, I, I look back at this and laugh, and I, I look at the, you know, even despite yourself sometimes, I think there's a plan for your life and things work out. Yeah. I applied, I need to figure out how to pay for college. I had to pay for it myself, and I uh, went to Wheaton College in Illinois, and school's expensive, and I had saved up enough money in my life you know, mowing lawns the two days of the year you can in Wisconsin and shoveling snow the rest. And um, I had enough to pay for the first year. But after that, I was like, man, I'm on my own to try to figure this out. And so I was like, man, I used to want to be in the Army when I was a kid. What's what's ROTC? And then I didn't get a scholarship my freshman year. And so I just did ROTC and the school said, you know, do it your first year and you'll have a lot better chance of getting a scholarship potentially your second year. So my whole first year at school, I just treated it like it was my last year and maybe my only year going there because I had no way to pay for anything after that first year. Um, so I did, I was my the student government president, the class president. I did, you know, crew, I did debate. I did, I did everything I could. Tried to go to class as much as I could as well. And I probably did a lot of things poorly, but it was during the summer actually after the year ended. And I, I got a call from the school saying I've been awarded a scholarship. I was like, sweet, get to come back next year. Uh, nice. A lot of fun. I noticed that you did a couple internships between college and starting the military. Mm-hmm. What was that like? You didn't just graduate and then go straight to officer school? No. I. It's kind of interesting. So I was required by my school. I was a political science major and kind of focusing on international relations. And I had to do an internship in order to graduate. And I'd done yeah. a couple other summer internships. And the school didn't count any of them, including an Army one I did, the Cadet Troop Leadership Program. 
spent spent the summer in Germany, which was a great experience. The school decided not to count any of those. Okay. So here it comes in graduation time and May 2003, and I still have to do a summer internship. So it forced me into, I got to walk and graduate, but I had to figure out another internship to do, cause, so I was end up being an August grad. And so I thought, boy, if I have this opportunity, that's what would be really fun. And so I applied to the State Department, and I was fortunate enough I got a call a couple days before Christmas from Peter Schmelk, who was the, the director of the uh, Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Yeah, you're uh, good at remembering people's names. I, it depends. I guess those some of these people have had a huge impact this on my like life. It was like 20 years ago. It is. Peter, yeah. though, incredible guy. Okay. Um, and I feel another very interesting theme in my life often, which I think is also it's good to help put you in your place, is he called me up and said, you know, we picked somebody else for this, uh, <laughs> but they backed out, and so <laughs> we called you. And I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm happy to be that guy. Nice. Um, and so I think, you know, just by trying and submitting for a really challenging internship to get, that people all over the country are doing, you know, it, it just opens up opportunities. So yeah. it was an incredible summer, and I actually got to meet my wife that summer, which yeah. I didn't know at the time. It was a couple years later before that even became anything. But I also interned at the Department of Commerce that summer. Yeah. and The SBA? Yep, SBA. And so okay. I worked in the office of Northern Virginia, and my job through the fall kind of was to help small to mid-sized businesses export overseas. And so I was connecting them with embassy contacts that would set up these trips where they could go and work on exporting. And it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. That, that was a crazy summer for me, though. I did, I did Arabic classes in the morning through the Foreign Service Institute, go work at the State Department Monday through Thursday. And then I took French and Russian classes at night through the Department of Agriculture. It has a graduate program in D.C. and, and a microeconomics class. Because somehow I missed that in, in college. So I went, school to me has always been fun and learning. And yeah. getting to be in D.C. was such an exciting time. Yeah. Do you still have any, like, SBA pamphlets <laughs> that they hand out? Were you digging through your drawer in I, 2014? <laughs> I'd say I have a lot more stuff from the SBA from the last month or two right now <laughs> as a business owner. So it's been a minute. But, yeah, I definitely spent a lot of time on the SBA website recently. So. Yeah. <laughs> you have a really good story about meeting your wife. You want to talk about that, too? Sure. Yeah. You know, so my wife, uh, her name is Patricia, and we met the first morning of checking in at the State Department. And I was actually talking to... Guy I just met there, his name was Adam Frankel, another wonderful human being. I like to talk about Adam all the time. Yeah. They went to school together. I was just chatting with Adam. Patricia walked up, and um, he said hi to her and introduced the two of us. And that was really the end of it. I, I saw her at some intern events, and she was just a person I met on my first day checking in. And I was dating somebody else that summer, and she'll always tell stories about how she tried to ask me to go on a run and do something, and I ignored her. But she was someone that I... Hard I, to get. Yeah, exactly. Or not. <laughs> and so it was, I, she was a person I kept in touch with, and I would send her, I sent her two letters. I think we finished December 2003, probably sent her a Christmas card, and she wrote back. And December 2004, sent her one, yeah. and she wrote back. And I honestly hardly remembered who she was, other than I was like, I remembered what she did and who she was, but there wasn't really a shared background or history. And it was beginning of 2005 when I was finally getting ready to go on my first deployment with the 82nd Airborne and going to Afghanistan. And I, I sent a letter to pretty much an email out to pretty much every girl I know just yeah. saying, I'm going to war. You know, if you wanted to write me, you could. That'd be cool. And it's an interesting marketing tactic. It worked. It, you know, you just you cast a wide net and then you see kind of... How many Christmas cards do you send? Are you one of those people who sends like 100 Christmas cards? Yeah. Yeah? A couple hundred. Two, three hundred. Yeah. Is that yeah. important? 
to it is maintain relationships I, just I, across everybody. I like to, and I, I think there's been times where we've. I, I love to me that's. I feel like I have friends you can classify into different groups where you maybe have your Christmas card friends, yeah. seasonal friends, or the season of life friends. Something big happens, you need to touch base, and and then there's those friends you maybe call daily, weekly, monthly, you know, on a much more high frequency. So she was someone that was a. Uh, let me keep in touch with once a year and see how her life is going. And yeah. I, again, I think people to me have always been like so important in relationships. And I think that there are so many opportunities you can, ways you can advance things you can accomplish in work or in life or for pleasure, enjoyment through people. Yeah. And so people to me has always been the focus to me in almost every endeavor or place I've worked or thing I've done is, is the people beyond the thing itself or the activity or the work of it. So she offered to write me letters, and the first letter I sent her in Afghanistan was a 17-page letter. And Jesus. it was a long letter. It's like, well, if you're going to write me, here's my life story. On like 8.5 uh, by 11? 8.5 by 11, yeah. Wow. I was, and, uh, so she wrote me proud. back a big, long letter, and we just started writing. Yeah. And it was, I deployed on her birthday, actually, that year, April 8th, 2005. And she invited me to come visit her in New York. She was in law school at the time. And said, hey, come back and see me. And we had not spoken on the phone I, you know, I hadn't even seen a picture of her. I, I hardly remembered her again. This is like somebody I saw a few times. I was like, huh, like yeah. that'd be, she sent me a picture of herself and she was at a picture of a big steak in front of her at Peter Luger's in, in Brooklyn. And nice. I was like, oh, I was like, I'm going to go to New York now. Like this, this is it. Like picture of her big Peter Luger steak. I was like, this is all I need to know about. Did her you go person. to Peter Luger's with We did. She took me out to Peter Luger's my last night there. And, uh, I was like, well, we should probably, probably date. That girl's got the inside track. She does. Yeah. So I went back to Afghanistan, and we kind of dated through the end of that deployment. I got back. Uh, a few months after I got back, I proposed to her in July, and then we actually got married um, the end of that year up in, up in New York. That got sped up because of another deployment coming in the surge in Iraq. But as a result of a second deployment, we didn't even live together until the third year of our marriage. It was the, the first day of the third year of our marriage is the first time we actually lived together. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. You're not the only person I know like that, but you're probably the only person that a lot of people know like that. Yeah. What do people say when they hear that? Yeah, that's sort of the opposite. I was like, yeah, it should ease and do it, you know, let's just, yeah. just take our time. Uh, but it was fun, and I think it, it's, it's allowed us to have a relationship that was built so much just on conversation and talking and just enjoying the intellectual side of, of who we all were. And, yeah. Um, How'd she feel about coming to Bragg? She actually loves Fort Bragg. And, and I think in a similar way where I would fly up to New York during the time we were dating um, often to go visit, she loved coming down to Fayetteville to see me because it was getting to see me. And when I decided to do Special Forces and we talked about it, I, it was kind of interesting. as one inflection point in my life as I got back from a deployment and we were dating and I could have gotten out of the Army. Yeah. And I actually during that time became a New York resident. I got a New York driver's license. I joined a gym in New York City. And I was like, I think I'm going to do this. And as I thought about it more and more, I was like, I, I want to be a Green Beret. I want to do Special Forces. There's still a war going on. Yeah. And I got to see some of those guys and see what they're doing. And I, that's what I want to do. And we talked a bunch about it, and she was supportive, which is amazing. And so I, I started down that path, and we ended up here. And I told her, if you let me do Special Forces, you pick the base. We can go, you know, Washington, Nashville, wherever you'd like to go. And she I thought wanted SF to, Branch picks the base. Well, that's... That's right. <laughs> and so uh, she wanted to be here at Bragg, though. She loves the weather, loves North Carolina and the okay. state. And, and we, you know, still live here now. We love North Carolina. Yeah. So what 
what do you still remember from being an officer in the 82nd? Could be running down Ardennes. It could be on deployment. But, like, what do you still carry with you? I learned so much. And I think that it was some of the, the best people that I've ever known and worked with. Just some incredible people there. Yeah. And for me, I think when I, I think back about so much of who I am right now, the, the 82nd wore off a lot of rough edges or helped, or helped build a rougher shell that needed to be there. And to be, you know, boy, to be 23 years old, 24 years old, and be thrown into a 44-man airborne rifle platoon of guys that are just getting back from a second deployment, and you're about ready to go on their third deployment as a brand-new second lieutenant who, you know, was just on a cross-country track and field team in college and loves to run and, and then, you know, and, and deal, you know, is wow, that was a humbling experience to, yeah. to go through. And How do you gain credibility in that situation? <laughs> it, it took me deploying and, and going through some stuff with the guys before I finally felt like I earned their trust completely. Yeah. And I think there were a lot of unique aspects to my situation with who my platoon sergeant was at the time, some of my squad leaders at the time. I had four platoon sergeants during my time as a platoon leader. It was pretty incredible. One of them, the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. The first two were pretty rapid changeovers. But Sergeant Robert Olson was my ranger instructor, one of them, in Dahlonega. And really? he, he came up and got to be my platoon sergeant right before we de- on the deployment. And I was like, do you remember me from ranger school? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, oh, no, that's, that's not good. You don't want to be the guy your instructor remembers yeah. from, from ranger school. And he just changed me, I guess. And I think that there were so many times that I was really struggling to figure out how do you lead how do you be in charge of guys that don't want you to go and get them killed or their guys killed yeah. and, and don't have that trust? And he helped as an incredible NCO counterpart. And then it was really, I feel, as we got into the deployment and got in some of our first altercations and, and dealt with that, yeah. that I was able to earn more trust from those guys. Yeah. And interestingly, I felt like even, even in SF, that was some of the... There's, there's almost that you kind of got to earn your stripes each time you... Each time you show up somewhere new, and that's a, it's a really unique aspect in the military, I think. So you show up, you're right out of college. You have a platoon sergeant who was your instructor in ranger school, but like, he's got probably seven to ten years in the military at that point? He had 17 at that point. Oh, really? Oh, he's yes. an old school guy. He was an old school okay. guy. Okay, all right. He was, so. <laughs> yes. My, my first time there, though, Sergeant Ryan Ventimiglia was my platoon sergeant. E5, been a ranger bat. He'd been, you know, in Haditha. He'd been on the Jessica Lynch rescue. He'd okay. been in Rhino. I mean, he did everything in the beginning. Like, if you want to talk to somebody fascinating, yeah. go find Ryan Ventimiglia. Ryan, because all my squad leaders were out for their um, NCO courses and my platoon sergeant, I showed up to the platoon with E5 Ryan Ventimiglia being my platoon sergeant. And that was awesome. And, and Ryan right. is still, to this day, one of the most professional NCOs I've worked with. So two steps below what's two steps below. doctrinally prescribed mm-hmm. as a platoon sergeant rank. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great. But like incredible experience. Incredible experience. Yeah. And, and so how, but like how's the relationship between, because you guys sort of hold office together, I mm-hmm. guess, right? Yep. And, and, you know, you just talk about that. Sure. For people who haven't been in the military. You know, I don't know if this exists anywhere else outside of the military where you have that kind of relationship. And when it works, and I felt like on my detachment, when I had Paul Rivers as my team sergeant, 
I had been in the Army long enough at that point to have had a lot of NCO counterparts yeah. and realized that this was incredibly special and I needed to enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. And so I think, I think when it works, you just have, you each have each other's back and you have somebody running the day-to-day and you get to focus on the strategy and the long-term picture. And when you can kind of come together and both have each other's respect, it is, it's a beautiful, incredible thing. I mean, you're both leaders, you're both leading the same group of people, but you have different sets of responsibilities yeah. and you have a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. and you and if you can make that work then people will remember you as a pair right mm-hmm. and i think that's it it's each have your own responsibilities and if you're able to both be competent hardworking, morally upright and do your job and support the other person it's incredible yeah and that cool. doesn't happen very often i think where <laughs> And maybe that's why the Army puts, puts two together so that hopefully they get one of them right that keeps, <laughs> keeps the unit going on its path. Yeah. Um, but when both can be aligned, it's, it's magic to me. What's your favorite leadership position you've ever had? Could be in or out of the military, business, personal, college, whatever. What was the most fun? I'll make it a little easier. Yeah, the most fun? I mean, getting to be a detachment commander was a ton of fun. Yeah. I mean, I, and I felt at that point in my career, I'd been in long enough to where I, you start to know the institution more and a lot of the institutional rules and norms and how things work. Yeah. And you have a lot more of the trust and respect of people to really get to do some fun things. And my time in Afghanistan, I got to have the same amount of resources that a, a colonel in the army would have of a brigade level assets, you know, with having civil affair teams and psyops and all, all of these people at my disposal in a huge swath of the country to play in and to be mine and to influence. And that was incredible. But I also, I think if I had to, I mean, boy, every time I got to be a leader, I think those are the special times in the army. There's all these times I spent a lot of time as an executive officer, a lot of time on staff, really XO time. XO time is not, especially in the beginning was not fun, but you learn so much. And it's a whole nother level of reward to be behind the scenes and have something work, have gas show up, food show up, a mission go off and, and nobody thinks of you if it all works out. And it's, a, it's a whole other level kind of rewarding. Yeah. But, man, getting to go out and go on missions and do things. It is kind of thankless. But it is. Do you think it sets you up for, for other, other things that are a little more rewarding later on? Definitely. And I, I think, that, you know, there's, it was interesting to me. I always think of one other team leader I knew that had never been. He was a platoon leader in the infantry, detachment commander. He'd never been an XO and never been a staff officer in his life. And the guy had no concept how stuff showed up and would just snap his fingers and want to have fuel and vehicles and make plans that were out of just no clue out of this is impossible. This is not how this works. And without understanding the logistics and the reality behind uh, making some of these things happen, you know, I just think it can't operationally make a good plan. So I think they're really crucial positions. Yeah. Ben said you had some movie poster in here, but I don't see it. Movie poster, Ben. I'm trying to think. Is this the uh, is it the picture up on the wall of our of my team? That's his team. That's not a movie poster. <laughs> nah, it was it was an old movie poster, but it, oh, oh right. really? Long no, a- anyway, you look like you're about 16 years old in your team picture. Yeah, I think I I think 16 and a half probably in that picture. So, uh, when did the aging really accelerate? <laughs> right after the army. I'd say that's yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, I was like, you know, you think the Army's hard on your body. The Army has nothing on craft beer. 
This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Coast to Coast Foundation. Founded and operated by members of the U.S. Special Operations Community, the Coast to Coast Foundation works to bridge the financial gap between veterans' medical needs and what's traditionally covered. Their annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related issues like traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, and other physical injuries. The Coast to Coast is by veterans for veterans. Visit coastxcoast.org to find out more and to donate. That's coastxcoast.org. You can also find them on Instagram or Twitter at CXC Foundation. Thanks. All right, so the fun's finally over. At some point, especially for officers, you, you get to have less fun. Yeah. Because you get to command a badass team, and then you get to go work in a staff, and then at some point you get to command a company, and then you go work in a staff. And so mm-hmm. you sounds like you kind of like enjoyed your heyday, right, on the team, mm-hmm. and then decide to get out. There was one single conversation I had with a colonel in special operations had been in the community a long time in a special mission unit and I was planning on doing another selection and just deciding that if I wanted to stay in the military I think I wanted to like that's yeah everybody thinks about that if you're going down that route in life and so this colonel sat down and spent an hour with me over coffee and at the end of that I walked away and I was like I'm gonna get out of the army it wasn't even just I'm not going to pursue trying to go to another selection but it was I think I'm going to get out and I think the, if I were to sum up his hour-long conversation with me, it was the fact of, you know, take care of your family, do whatever is best for them. If being in the military is what you want to do, do whatever will provide the best for them. If, and that means do what the Army wants you to do. If they want you to go to recruiting command, go to recruiting command. Don't take whatever job that takes you down some rabbit hole that you think is really cool the end of the day, you're not going to get to be operational as an officer, so don't even think you're going to get to do something fun. You're going to be in charge of special people doing special things. Yeah. And then you are going to, if you go these routes, most likely limit your potential for career advancement, which is going to limit your ability to get paid. It will limit your retirement and limit your ability to take care of your family one day. And yeah. he said, that's what's most important. So do whatever the Army wants. And in some ways, I'm sure maybe he was just saying, like, anybody I can weed out before they even try, all the better so we don't have to deal with them. But that conversation to me was, was so profound, I just left that and was like, you know, my days of getting to, to do fun stuff as an officer are over no matter what I do. Yeah. And while there's incredible mission sets and incredible groups of people out there to get to work with, I really realized that I did not want to be another wrench in the cogs of success and stick around when I felt like, you know what, I, what else can I do with my life that would allow me to be around my family more yeah. and maybe provide better for my family. So what was the discussion like at home? My wife has been supportive of all the crazy things I've done in my life. And yeah. so when it got point, she was supportive of me. She married me when I was in the Army in between deployments. She was supportive of me deciding to do special forces. Mm-hmm. She was supportive of me if I wanted to try to plan to do something else and also if I decided to get out yeah and I think when she saw also how much we started just throwing ourselves into opening the brewery and all the work that went into that she's 100% behind it and probably to her fault all the crazy harebrained ideas I come up with she's just kind of well (laughs) 
here we go. Is she and the person that you bounce them all off? Oh, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And I think we're, I'm the eternal optimist and the, the dreamer. She's very good at just bringing me back to earth a little bit. Is that due to her profession at all? Oh, it definitely is. Yes, as an, as an attorney, she's <laughs> she's an expert at seeing terrible things in any scenario. Okay, and so it doesn't matter what I what I bring up. She's very good at. Well, this could go wrong. That could go wrong. What if this happens? And it's like, okay, that all could. But so talking about family, how when were your kids born, and and what were you thinking about at the time when you got out? If you're thinking primarily about family. Mm-hmm. You know, we had my, I have three children now, so they're 10, 7, and 4, Ava, Claudia, and, and Wyatt. So Ava, Maria, Claudia, Sophia, and Wyatt. And I love, Latin names are so beautiful for, for women. And my wife, you yeah. know, Patricia, I'd say her name terribly from, from Wisconsin. Yeah. And I was like, I want to give these beautiful Latin names to my daughters. Yeah. But for my son, he's Wyatt. Gonna, he's a gunslinger. He's a gunslinger. Yeah. Flannel okay. shirt, gunslinging kid. So, boy, I, it's funny, just recently when my kids brought out a Christmas storybook that when you turn the pages, it's an audio recording of me reading the Christmas story that my wife bought for me to read before I went on a deployment so that my kids could have me read them the Christmas story when I was in Afghanistan. Yeah, and cool. it's just so interesting that you know, we still have that on the shelf. Yeah. And, and to think about all the ways that our lives and like so many military people today, you know, they just, it's normal that I'd be gone for a year. I mean, I remember my 14-month deployment where I had, you know, my second birthday in Iraq. And that's just a long time to be gone. You stop your whole life and start it again, and everybody does that. But it's so special for me right now to get to be there every day for my kids and even getting to, to do things where I'm gone every other weekend sometimes or at work late. Like, all of that just pales in comparison to, at least I'm not gone a year. You know, that's, and it's, the Army's done a very good back job of, you know, adding in the, <laughs> the the low end of expectations. So and so, from an expectation management standpoint, the Army's done a very good job of can't be worse. Yeah. Uh, from a time and a commitment standpoint, it's interesting that my kids though may never they're never really going to know their dad as being in the military. My daughter Claudia and, and my son Wyatt always like to kid around about me being a pink beret, and they some cartoon with rabbits where the rabbit is a pink beret, so they always kid around about me being a pink beret. But you know, my son Wyatt still likes to dream of killing bad guys one day and that's a, a life goal of his and yeah so it's interesting to me what part of me will carry through to them from the military yeah getting the bad guys getting the bad guys that's right uh, it's always a noble <laughs> endeavor exactly <laughs> so you were up against this time crunch to get out yep right how'd you get the buy-in from your partners in time and what was the point of no return for you guys it was john and i it's march 2013 is when I heard that uh, angel investor and April, May, we were just kind of talking about it. And at that point, John was at the weapons sergeant course and Jason was at the small unit tactics course. And John just got promoted and Jason was dual military. And so Jason had a unique scenario to where if he ever wanted to break his family care plan, he would be able to chapter out and get out at any point under a family separation plan because of him and his Meaning wife. his wife was in the military too? Yes. Okay. His wife was in the military as well and still is to this day. As we, we were just kind of talking about it and all three of us were really, how does transition work? And with John's contract was up and even though he got his orders to E7, if he turned them down, he was getting out. And and so the, the timing just kind of worked out well from that standpoint. And so I turned in my resignation on 
June 27th, 2013. And, and I had 11 months left. And so that kind of started this clock of, we need to have a business going. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, money stops at that point. And so that, that really started us down this crazy path for a year where we started visiting a bunch of breweries. We did two brewing schools. I did one yeah. through the Siebel Institute in Chicago. And then I went out to San Diego with John. We rented an RV and stayed at White Labs, which is one of the main yeast propagators in the country. And we did an essential quality control course out there. Yeah. Same time, we're working on a business plan. Jason's dad, Will, uh, we called him our, our business Jesus. He was long career in UPS, worked as a chief operating officer, CEO of other companies. And he came down one weekend and spent a whole weekend helping us start to work on our business plan. It was a kind of a crazy year of all summer business plan, visiting breweries, working on equipment lists, yeah. did those two brewing schools. And then we started going to banks mm-hmm. and put all our eggs in one basket of one local bank regionally headquartered here in Southern Pines. And everybody said, regional bank headquartered there, that's the bank to go to, a community bank. So we waited a month and it was, sadly, it was actually the morning we graduated from our course in San Diego, our brewing course. Yeah. We'd spent all that time in San Diego being brewers. I was still in the army, but I was on leave, but I was mentally starting to transition out of being in the military saying, I might actually get to do this. And out there telling all these awesome people that we're starting a brewery. Wake up that morning, get a call from the bank that our loan had been denied. We're not getting it. And we're like, oh. And then we had to walk in and graduate from our little program. And it was just such this kind of gut punch to think, oh, man, like we're we're moving forward, but who knows what's going to happen. And got back from that and we said like we just need to go to every bank there is there's no more we went to one this is everybody says the best one like we're doing them all so next three weeks we went to eight other banks got shot down seven times and it was pnc and patrick berry the banker there who believed enough in us and funneled it up through their system and we got a call the day before thanksgiving of that year that our loan was approved yeah and we were getting an sba backed patriot express loan which was pretty incredible nice how much commitment did they need from you all all, all, all. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, so you do a personal guarantee, right? <laughs> exactly. You're always going to have to personally guarantee. Have you ever had to raise equity? We have not. And we, I guess, intentionally, when we started, we reached 33% owners of our business, and we did not want to have investors. And we felt like, let's pay off debt holders, yes. but we wanted to have the business and be able to make the decisions and run it the way we wanted to run it. And Jason and John, over the last few years, both have left. And I'm the sole owner of Southern Pines Brewing Company. How did that go? Facilitating the, the exit of some of the founders? It, it's been a, you know, an incredible learning opportunity for, I think, for myself and for all of us. And I would say, first, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that we had the, the friendship and the relationship we had. And we had a sound operating agreement that allowed us to deal with what happens at the end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to me, having... People sit down with us in the very beginning, and we always talk about our true north. This is before there's money on the table, before we've invested our time and our lives. What are the principles that are going to guide how we're going to treat our relationship with each other yeah. upon entry and exit of this business? And that allowed us to go through, you know, two other, John first a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, um, leaving. And then really only about six months ago, Jason left. and wanted to kind of continue to pursue other opportunities. So having the agreement in place when you start. I'd say that's a super important thing to do for any partnership. How many people do the same job their whole life or for five years of their life? And to think that you start a business and this may be something you want to do the rest of your life may be true, but you may also want to do other stuff. 
Yeah. And so I think even if it's nothing that's bad or nothing happens, it's just I want to do something different. There needs to be a good structured way to facilitate that. Did you guys all start as home brewers and then go to school? Because I also noticed like back here behind the office, you have some, it's like Breaking Bad almost back there. <laughs> how yeah. technical does it get? So where'd you start and then how, how, how much knowledge have you acquired over the beer making process? Boy, it started, I liked beer. Yeah. And that was, and again, I had... I think that's where we all start. That's where we start, exactly. Yeah. And it's the best place to start, I think. I had made beer only one time I can remember before we came up with the idea of starting the brewery. Yeah. And it was with a neighbor of mine across the street who had a pot boiling, a bag of grain he steeped in it. We sat and drank some beers and then he left it in his closet and I went back over there a few weeks later and drank some. I have no recollection what it tasted like. And at no point in my life did I have this, despite even being from Wisconsin and having yeah. an uncle who's a cheesemaker, ever plan on making beer in my life or dabble in making beer. I love to cook. I love food. And culinary stuff has always been fascinating to me, but never brewing beer. And for all three of us, beer was the catalyst to get us started, but it was truly entrepreneurship that was what was exciting for us. Yeah. And I think what I've realized through this process is that whether I was making socks or doing anything else, if you're providing a good or a service to people and doing it well, that's exciting and trying to figure out how to yeah. build a business and build an organization. But the science side, when we, when we first started, it was we have no idea what we're doing. I remember our, one of our first beers, we had a black IPA and a Hefeweizen we made. We dumped the black IPA down my driveway. It was so bad. <laughs> and then I remember for 4th of July, we had a, a party at my house, and we were drinking the Hefeweizen. And Jason's wife, Aaliyah, on the drive home after the party said, you know, maybe you should stay in the Army. That was pretty bad beer. Yeah. And that was terrible. And so we, you know, we said, though, if we're going to start a brewery, we, we need to be able to make the beer. And so that really started us down that path of we would brew four or five nights a week at my house. We would get done with work. A lot of my job was more of a, you know, 6.30 to 5 job, army job. And when those guys weren't out in the field doing training, we were at my house. And we'd brew till about 1 in the morning. And I, you know, I, almost every day of the week. And so we had, we spent some of our core beers we have right now, like our Manilaw IPA, our Duck Hook Cream Ale. We spent a year brewing those over and over and over again, really trying to perfect the recipes and learn. Yeah. And uh, probably had about 20, 25 five-gallon carboys all throughout my bonus room fermenting everywhere. And I still have two at my house right now from way back in 2014 that have been souring since then, some wild and sour beers that uh, I need to bring in and, and figure out how to how to tap and see if they're any good. Do you ever brew on deployment? Never did. No? No. It was. <laughs> I, I knew a guy from West Virginia who would moonshine on deployment. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. No. So what's the deal with veteran-owned coffee and beer companies? <laughs> I always say that there's something about government service that drives you to alcohol is, <laughs> is probably the, the best explanation that yeah. I think most, most veterans or military folks would understand and agree with. I, you know, I don't know. I think what, for me, entrepreneurship, again, for me, was this extension of getting to do the fun parts of the military. Yeah. And it, it's like being on a mission every day where if things that were fun about the military were taking risks, jumping out of airplanes, getting to go on a patrol, planning something and yeah. executing it. And I think if you get out and just get a job, you know, you're, you lose all of that. You lose the autonomy, you lose the entrepreneurial aspects of it. You're getting a paycheck, you're getting maybe taken care of, and there's still inherent risk with that. But 
starting a brewery to me is this neat way to probably find a passion project and then also get to introduce excitement and risk back into your life, similar yeah. to what you had on a deployment. But it's now probably not your life that's at risk, but it's your family's resources, it's your house, it may be your health care. Like you're, in some ways, it's a whole heightened level of risk you're taking on to start a business. So now you're leading a team of civilians. Mm -hmm. I read that you have a company ethos. Where'd you guys come up with that? I mean, I know where you guys came up with it, but how important was it to write that down? And when you explain something like that to your civilian employees, what do you say? I remember when we sat down to do our business planning weekend with Will, with Jason's dad, and we were all ready. We had Excel out and ready to start building these spreadsheets. And he's like, guys, put those away. What are your core values? What's your mission statement? Yeah. And we're like, what do you mean? Like, let's... let's well, whatever. Like, how do we how do we build this sheet? Right. And he's like, no, this is what we're starting. And this is what we're doing today. And and that was such a profound conversation and a way to start our business. And so for me, what's been so much fun is as every employee that comes into our brewery, first day is is orientation to what is our mission, what is our core values, why is it that we're doing what we're doing, and the purpose behind it. Yeah. And I think so often that's that's lost on life. And and our purpose, in some ways, I say it's so unimportant. Yeah. compared to what I felt like I did before. But it's also, to me, maybe way more important than, than what I did before. You know, our mission statement is Southern Pines Brewing Company is a craft brewery that brews high-quality beers for our community in order to enhance the enjoyment of everyday life. And, you know, as Southern Pines Brewing Company, to me, what's the why in that is in order to enhance the enjoyment of everyday life. And to me, what has been so special is if you look up in the tap room right now, there's a whole bunch of people... 50% of the people that could be there before, but a bunch of people. Right, before COVID. Before COVID. And they are just having a little bit better day. And that is, to me, just so special to see people coming in to get together, to have community. And our slogan is rooted in the community. Yeah. And to me, this business has really allowed me to have so much more of an impact in my town and in my county, in my state, my country, than I think I ever had in the military even. I got to do some really incredible things, but... The impact I can have as a business owner on other business owners, on employees, on our town is just super cool. It is, it's incredible. Who are your first customers? <laughs> so I used to live here and I think I left about the time you guys started up, but all the locals know you, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So, I mean, one thing that's interesting is neither you or your wife are from here, but you decide to stay here and build a business and that you're very dedicated to the community, right? Yep. There was a question in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, we want to take a break from listening to this episode to give a sincere thanks to everyone who listened to episode one and everyone who's tuning in today. For episode one, we set a goal of 50 downloads and we had over 200 the first week. So we're thrilled about that and we just want to see this thing keep growing. Uh, some of our close friends gave their feedback and support, much appreciated. One of our friends, Rai, even volunteered some new artwork, which you're going to see on the episode and on the website, Twitter, all that. So that's great. The first one that I did was in PowerPoint, admittedly. So, you know, it wasn't the hall in the mail for us. We would love if you kept sharing the podcast with any of your family, friends, colleagues, present, former, anyone you know that would enjoy it. We know that the most powerful form of advertising is word of mouth. So we really appreciate it. 
You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Those ratings and reviews really help us to gain some visibility, so we appreciate that. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Our website is thankyounowwhat.com. You can go there for episode notes. You can see links to all of our podcast destinations, links to support the podcast, and some extra info about Ben and me. We're on Twitter at ThankYouNowWhat. You can be one of our 10 followers to date. Uh, We're going to look for ways to put more stuff out there, but uh, stay tuned. You can also email ThankYouNowWhat at gmail.com for questions, ideas, or follow-up. If you like what we're doing here, there are a couple ways to support the podcast more materially. All net proceeds from donations will be redirected to veteran-oriented nonprofits as soon as we pay our bills. You can go to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. Patreon is a platform for creators. You can subscribe to the podcast and donate $1 per episode. It comes out when we publish. You can also donate more, but a dollar is great. We just uh, we appreciate anyone who shows up there. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash thankyounowwhat. There's also a link on the website. You can also give a one-time donation via PayPal by using the other link on our website. You can also just support the nonprofits that we happen to feature on the podcast. Uh, Today's nonprofit is the Coast to Coast Foundation. So we thank you for all your support. We hope you're enjoying, and we'll get back to the interview now. So who've been your, I guess, your loyal customers, your first customers? Do people give you honest feedback too? Because I know that I, I, you know, I could see certain parts of inside your brain. You want people to tell you what's wrong, mm-hmm. right? More than praise, most likely. And it's hearing those things is right. Is you're like, oh, thank you for, you know, those are gifts when people and those kind of relationships that people can tell you the things that you maybe don't know but you should hear that are amazing. I'd just say this: this guy looking out the the door here right now, Mike Murphy. Um, just opened up the door. Mike is our insurance agent. <laughs> How you doing, Mike? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we are. We're so blessed in this town to have. You know, for me, Mike was exactly one of the guys I was going to talk about. Who you know is a sounding board for me for things. Comes by here to to grab a beer. We text each other. You know, they are very involved with the local chamber of commerce, and it is so fascinating to talk to other business owners and hear. Yeah. Um, what what struggles are they going through, or how is our community dealing with issues from things like schools to roads to growth and development that are you know, impacting so many other societies, diversity issues in our community? Do you think that other companies here do that enough, and do you think that other companies in your industry do it where they're from? I think craft breweries, one of the things that most attracted me to this industry was the community aspect of them and how you know bars are different than breweries and people come here to hang out to talk and it's really this communal place and so it draws in to me just this everybody from the mayor to the, the fire chief to some guys that just got done doing landscaping outside like everybody kind of comes in here on equal footing and they're all here to be part of community another interesting little story you know three weeks ago i was sitting in the brewery and i got a call from david warnoff who's the owner of the pilot newspaper in town and David is someone who I you know, love and respect a ton and the work that they do for our town and letting people know what's going on. And 
and David and I had some really awesome conversations about his business and mine at different points. And David saw a for rent sign on a building downtown Southern Pines. And it was where there was a former business, a growler shop that had been there for six years, as long as we've been around. Beautiful outdoor patio. And we've always talked about a downtown tap room. You know, we're just in the outskirts of town here. Yeah, this is a very walkable town. It is. And the but downtown, you have to be downtown. You've got to be downtown, exactly. Yeah. And a block makes a big difference. And we're, you know, we're a full two-minute drive outside of downtown. Right. So we're you know, another universe. And so David sees a for rent sign in the building that had been taken for over two years. So he walks over, talking to me on the phone, leaves the pilot, and tells me the phone number. I call, meet the owner of the building the next day, and sign the lease. And I would have totally missed that opportunity because I don't drive through that intersection ever. But because of this town and the relationships with the people here, that opportunity presented itself, and I'm about to open a downtown tap room because of David's phone call looking out for me. And so there's so many things like that, and the, the social capital, I feel that being an entrepreneur and in a smaller community like this is just invaluable. And I, as I think about where I want to be the rest of my life or where do I want my kids to grow up, what an amazing town. And I couldn't have what I've been able to build here in five years being somebody in the military that just lived here to becoming a business owner and making this truly my home and saying I'm going to stay here. This yeah. has become such a special place to me. You talked about in a separate article you talked about going from product centricity to mm-hmm. customer centricity in your business and it sounds like community centricity as well definitely can you can you explain a little bit more about what that means i think that in craft beer in particular but many industries it's very easy to get focused on the product and for a lot of what craft beer is you're doing crazy things and putting things people never thought of into beer sometimes and it's it's very easy to get way in the weeds and focused on a product and instead of thinking about Who's drinking it? And I think for us, early on, it was always, who's going to be drinking this? Where, when, and why? And let's make beers for them. Our first two beers we made were our Manilaw IPA. The first beer we ever brewed was our Duck Hook Cream Ale. Cream Ale is like a light lager. You know, 4.3% ABV, Czech sauce hops. And it was the um, early American ale brewery's answer to German lagers, as a lot of German immigrants came to the country. And it's the first beer we made because as we looked around our town and we looked who was here, we said, there's, there's no light beer in our town. We have an older population, a military population. It's hot out. We're not going to come out with some crazy IPA. We're not going to make all this wild and sour. We're going to make a cream ale. And in our town, that's been voted in the pilot in the, as the number one beer in Moore County, I think, for the last three or four years. From what I understand, a brewery will have like a set of flagship beers and then a set of seasonal beers and then maybe a set of experimental beers. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of manage your product development and rollout over the years? It's been definitely an evolving process, and it's been a lot of fun to build that. And our core lineup in our local market is so important. And, I mean, in Moore County, we sell Manilaw and Duck Hook and a ton of it. In the rest of the state, you really have a different dynamic of people that are always wanting something new and exciting. And it was a year in where we realized every time we put out a new seasonal, there'd be a big bump. And we always thought, oh, this is going to be the one. And then it just kind of tapered off until the next one came. And that's what kind of started us down this path of these limited release beers. Yeah. Sticking on, on the customer centricity kind of topic, two years ago we started our first summit that we do, and we call it our key account summit. We do it the morning of our anniversary party at the brewery, and we invite our top accounts from around North Carolina to come. Yeah. And it's been just a really phenomenal opportunity to say, you guys support our brand, you're a good customer, and you have your pulse on your customers in a way that we don't. 
What can we make for you? We're continually cranking out new beers, new ingredients, trying new processes to try to keep making fun and innovative things for people. What do you mean by accounts? I say accounts, customers. So accounts is such a terrible word, but retail accounts. Yeah, but I mean, even then, who are your customers aside from a person who walks in off the street, orders a beer, drinks it? Well, we have, at this point in our brewery, we have a number of customers. We work within a three-tier system that most states, kind of after prohibition, was mandated where you have a brewery supplier who has to sell to a distributor as a second tier who then sells it to a retail account as a third tier before it ever gets to the consumer. Practices. How many years ago was this? Long, long time ago. Yeah. And so we, we do have two distributors. We're distributed across the state of North Carolina in all 100 counties. Yeah. And actually the Netherlands. We sent our first shipment over to the Netherlands this year, which has been kind of fun to see people in Amsterdam tagging oh, our nice. beer and drinking it. But we still self-distribute then in Moore County. So we have... Wait, does Heineken come from the Netherlands? Yep. Okay. Yep. So they send us like a terrible beer and you sent them and you're like, <laughs> we're good. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fair trade. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so, No, no, no. You sent them a good one in return oh, and exactly. said you, that's you right. keep that to yourself. <laughs> I know a lot of people that would, would beg to differ with you, though. So that's... Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, yeah. So that's... Yeah. Perfect personal preference. <laughs> but, you know, so we, we end up still self-distributing here in our home county, which means there is no distributor, and we're able to go right to the doorstep and, and bring beer to those accounts. So you kind of work both. So locally, you can sell direct to accounts, and then... You still navigating the three tiered system statewide? Yes, exactly. Okay. Huh. At some point, we got to talk about going to business school. <laughs> so we happened I, to go to business school together. Happened to exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when did you When did you make that call, and why? I've always loved learning and education, and I think to me, I kind of talked before about when I was in D.C. interning at the State Department. I was taking Arabic, Russian, French, and microeconomics classes in morning and night. In Afghanistan, on my last deployment, I got a certificate in terrorism studies from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. I just always have loved learning. And when I got out of the Army, and I always wanted to get a master's degree. I just felt it would be so much fun. Mm. I dreamed of going to, if I would have stayed in the military, going to Johns Hopkins and go to SICE. That would have been my early Micah's. Decent school. Yeah, yeah. it's a decent school. Yeah. And uh, would have, that was my goal. And as I got out of the military and was in business, I kind of was like, well probably never going to go to get a master's now. Like, what am I going to do? And I also thought, why would I ever go get an MBA? Like that, that was in the military degree that never appealed to me. Yeah. It really was foreign policy type stuff. And then I was like, well, I'm in, I own a business now. Why would I go to business school? That makes no sense. And everybody I knew that went to business school, it was a career transition tool. And I was like, well, I'm not transitioning right now. I'm, I'm in the weeds. And actually a good friend of mine, Gabe, one of the smartest people I know too, just incredible mind. And I got to know Gabe, he was the MI officer attached to us in Afghanistan on that trip. And so Gabe ended up um, going to Wharton and did his executive MBA and actually wrote a letter of recommendation for him to go. And I honestly like knew nothing about Wharton and I'd never in my life wanted to go to business Wait, you school. wrote his recommendation? I wrote one of them for him, yeah. I was his commanding officer. and um, You were in the same class. So he started a year before... <laughs> And then, oh. and then deferred a year and joined up in our class and we graduated together. Oh, man. It I was, didn't know that. Yep. Yeah. And so he was there a little before me. And I still remember being in Carthage, just up the road here. And I was out doing my sales calls at the Blue Horse Market. And he called me. And I was just talking to him about, how has business school? What's your experience been? And he was just telling me about the classes and the topics and what he was learning. I felt like, wow, for the first time in my life, I thought, 
here I am trying to figure out how to do operations, work on finance, do sales, do all this stuff. And I have no formal education. And I was like, wow, I think it all applies to me. And that was really when I heard about that program. And then he told me about how people fly in from all over the country. I'm like, really? There's people that will fly to Philly every other weekend for two years to do yeah. something like this? He's like, yep. And not even like, just this country. Not even this country, all over the world. Blew me away. And I remember coming home and talking to Patricia, and this is you know one of the, the latest of Micah's long string of crazy asks as I come home. Right. I think I want to go to business school <laughs> and in, in Philadelphia. <laughs> so, so that kind of started me down this whole... And do I, you have a look when you... Before you let out one of these crazy <laughs> ideas, where she can just see it it's probably now, a and big, she's big like, "Twinkle in my eye." She's like, next. "Okay, what? Ne- what?" <laughs> That's right. What you- <laughs> can ask. I guarantee. There's. I, I had that look down too. So yeah. And I feel like I have to keep coming up with crazier and crazier ideas, just so maybe even my my normal asks are not that bad. And, and in the big scheme of things, Mike has already done some just crazy things. Right. The so, old red herring. Yeah. This of is life moves. Right. This is so. This is the the lesser of evils that I know he's capable of. Yeah. So We'll let this one slide. Would you have gone elsewhere, or was that just the one? That was the only school I applied to. Yeah. And and I really felt that to me that was the best school out there, and particularly to have their program for executives that they have is unique to have a school of that caliber have a program like that it allowed me to continue to do the brewery and man everybody here helped so much i mean i would not have been able to do it without jason here and everybody in the brewery picking up my slack or texting me when i'm in class and something happens and, and making it happen but i i just felt boy how do you grow a company how do you continue to finance growth and my knowledge base on the fundamentals of business i, I kind of always step back and think about this that Nobody ever joins the army and gets to go right into special operations. Yeah, you know you have to go through years of training. And you, know, you just think of the the time if you go through everything from basic training to your some infantry course to then this school, that school, and this school. You have years and years before you're ever even allowed to go out on a mission. And what's so fascinating to me is that business. To me, you can just start a business and do it, but there are a lot of skills and there are a lot of fundamental factual based math things that you should know yeah and just as much as if you want to know the maximum effective range of your weapon systems and there are so many technical things to make sure you can jump out of a plane and check a parachute's gonna open and all those things there are just as many for business and if you don't prepare yourself and learn those things at some point you're setting yourself up for failure or for making mistakes that you maybe don't have to yeah. And so to me, that experience was just... What were some of the things you felt incredible. least prepared for, either at the outset or that you learned that you didn't know? One of my favorite stories of our first year is we were making beer and we were at max capacity. We were turning down accounts. We were making all the beer we could. Mm-hmm. And, and we just thought, man, our problem is that we need more fermenters. And we make a plan, and our fermenters are always full, and we, we can't get the beer out. And at that stage of the business, we had no employees. The three of us were doing everything. And at one point, I was looking at our calendar for the following month, and it had twice as much beer on the calendar that we were going to brew. But every month, we only made half that amount. And I just started to think, why is it that we can do it? Like, the calendar has the exact days of fermentation, and you can lay out the Tetris table, and it works, but we couldn't do it. And we had ordered already two more 60-barrel fermenters, two huge fermenters. We felt like that's what we needed. That was a choke point. 
dig back into the savings account. And, and so we bought these two big fermenters. I'm looking at this calendar and realizing what was happening was we didn't have enough kegs and that beer would sit in the fermenter longer and longer and longer and go past that time because the choke point was kegs to get it out of. And to not have an understanding of choke points of operations, to have a time to be able to even analyze these things, we spent tens of thousands of dollars on two huge fermenters and we just needed to buy some more kegs and we could have doubled our production. But it was also, I think, realizing when do you have the time if you don't have employees and you're just getting started and when yeah. can you even manage and start to analyze this stuff and understand it? Yeah. And there, I still remember when we did our operations class and the, the matching supply to demand book. And all I could think of is like, you've got to be kidding me. There's a book for this. <laughs> I was like, every day I sit here and try to guess how much beer to make, have my fancy forecasts all still sitting right there for the last like four years. Yeah, using calculus to equate expected overage cost to expected underage cost based yep. on your forecast. Yep. And, and to learn that our, you know, our, we're doing... It's a wonder the army didn't teach you that. Exactly. And you know what, I, what? It was even fun for me to think about the army from a standpoint of how much waste there is, right? There's just tons of stuff, tons of people. Yeah. But if you think about it from a operational standpoint, if you want to have a zero chance of failure and you're looking at a probability curve of what are those tail events and if you want to have like a 99% chance of being in stock, a 99% of chance of having an 82nd Airborne ready to deploy, you have lots and lots of assets and resources in waste sitting yeah. there yeah. to flex during those very weird long tail events. And yeah. so it made total sense to me all of a sudden to think about the military saying, all this money, all these people, half of them are out cutting grass doing wasting time doing all this stuff yeah but if you want to have raking a, dirt sweeping parking lots exactly but if you want to have a zero percent chance of failure you don't do lean manufacturing with your military yep. and spin them up quick when you need them you have them there waiting on hand so it was even fun to think about the military differently and say like, yeah that's they're ready for that like three sigma event to occur yeah um at any point so what mistake have you learned the most from in the business so far and what'd you change after the most important things we've learned, maybe from a business sense, is trying to understand working capital and not having a firm understanding of that when we started, myself in particular, to not comprehend what happens when account payable is going up and you're going to terms when before it was cash on delivery, to not understand what's happening as production is increasing and you need to buy more raw materials and your inventory is going up. And you're making more money, but your bank account keeps going down lower and lower and lower yeah. and trying to come to grips with like, oh, we're, we're growing so fast we may fail from right. it is, was a stark sort of thing to start to come to grips with. And I think so many businesses, if you start up and you're just thinking about the stuff you have to buy and don't spend the time thinking about working capital and how you're going to start with it or quickly make it, you're going to fail and and. Probably every small business is undercapitalized. I don't know if there's yeah. ever been a capital, well-capitalized business. And I think that's part of your earning your stripes is you have to get capitalized. We're going to give you enough money to get started, but you have to prove this thing is worth the time to build your working capital to the level you can, can get there. Yeah. I, I think another so vocabulary thing Vocabulary is very important in accounting. It is. Vocabulary is critical. Yeah. Cash <laughs> versus income. And there's a lot of good metrics you can find out there to, to feel good at the end of the day. Might may still result in you not being able to pay your bills the next day. I think a second thing that's been really hard for me to learn that I've really thought a lot about is what's the difference between a team and a family. And I think it's very easy to use those words interchangeably yeah. if you're talking about culture of a business. 
Yet a family operates incredibly differently than a team. Can't pick your family. And they're your blood and they're always there. And you can also love each other and share a whole bunch together, but they're your family. A team is different. A team is something you try out for, you make, you can get cut. You are a contributing member. You're getting every minute of every game, of every practice, you're, you know, being assessed for how you're doing. Yeah. And so it's it's very interesting to me to try to for myself personally to come to grips with from a cultural standpoint, how do you have a team or family? What does that mean? And how do you try to meld those things together? And yeah, so I was actually going to ask a question like this. Yeah. So you can go into however much detail you want, but do too many people assume that my army teammates are going to be great business partners in terms of ease of transition going from one relationship to the next? I would say that it could work out phenomenally well, and it could not. And I think in our scenario, what works so well in the beginning is that doing a startup is a team sport. takes everybody chipping in and pulling their weight. And we were here all day, every day. The year before this, we worked late every night, and we were all on board. We split up our roles on the in the job. I was the detachment commander, so I was the CEO. Jason was the engineer sergeant on our team, whose administrative function, his warfighting functions to go do engineering stuff and blow up roadside bombs, and his administrative function is doing money. So yep. he was our CFO. John was the weapon sergeant on our team, so he was the you know the guy doing carrying guns and doing all the fun stuff with that, and his administrative function was operations. And so we COO. And so in some ways it was, all right, I'm used to doing the PowerPoint and talking to people. Jason does the money for the team, and John does ops, so we're going to fill those roles here. And it was a really yeah. seamless transition for us. But I think what's what, what's challenging to me is that it's very different being a doer and a planner, and as businesses grow, just like if you move up in the military and organizations, your job function may change. And do you want to be an administrative person, or do you want to be a doer? And probably some of those same same roles as you start to think about if I'm building this organization with some other people, what roles do we want to have? And where do we see ourselves being? What size organization? Do we have a plan to even do that? And is that something that you want to do or not? So it's it's kind of interesting that by starting your own business, if you want to be successful, you probably do not have a goal of getting to be like on an ODA. You're yeah. not if you're gonna be the doer your whole life, you're you know, maybe that's what you love and that's what you want to do totally fine but it's very hard to grow an organization if you're you know you need that company commander the battalion commander the battalion csm you need that the organization to be built so the doers can do things and those are it's very different i think most people not most a lot of people naturally think hey we work great together Mm -hmm. but it's in a very specific very unique position right whatever your function is in the military and so a lot of people, they really want to succeed with the same team and they take it into this new venture, right? And no one knows what's behind that door entirely when you do it. It's and, an opportunity. And I've, to... I've talked to plenty of people, you know, regular business people go through it as well, but they just don't have such a strong, I guess, personal tie, maybe sometimes to the people that they go in with. No, and it, I often think about, who else would I ever want to go into business with? Like, boy, I knew these guys well. Like, we lived in a tent together, and we, yeah. you know, we, yeah. I had more personal experiences with them and ability to judge their character myself yeah. than I may ever have with most anybody else in my life. Yeah. And that was who we chose, you know, to go into business together with. 
And so it's, it's always very fascinating to me to think about, boy, if you do form a partnership or find these other people, you know, who are they? What, what is that relationship? What is your working relationship? What is your friendship? How do you, how does that all play out? Yeah. And it's, it's a super, super interesting dynamic yeah. to think about. But people change too, you know, and goals and aspirations change and your station in life changes, your family scenario changes. All those things kind of have an impact on you. And, yeah. and so that's, it's always interesting. And transition out of the military is a huge transition. Yeah. And who you are in the military may not be who you want to be afterwards either. If we're in many different areas of your life. Do you uh, just like go on to some lighter shit? <laughs> do you? <laughs> Back to beer. Good. Do you get grief if someone sees you drinking a glass of wine or, or, a, or a glass of liquor? <laughs> They're like, well, what's up, man? You're the beer guy. Well, what makes me super happy now is if I ever go over to the Harris Teeter in Pinehurst, Anita's over there, and Anita's one of my favorite people in town. And I walk up, and she opens up one of the little bottles of Prosecco and puts it on the bar for me and knows exactly what I want when I, when I show up. And so I think uh, it's fun for me to... I, Prosecco is my go-to. I love cider, love wine. Really? And, Prosecco? Uh, oh, man. I crush Prosecco. So good. By the case. And so it's, uh, I, I love it. And beer to me is so much fun to drink, and when I drink beer to me, it's to explore it and try new flavors and see what the brewer is trying to do and what were the ingredients and all those things are so much fun for me but i rarely just sit and drink beer i don't have a go-to beer i don't have yeah. beer in my fridge in my house in my garage i got a bunch of our beer for when people come over yeah but my go-to is usually not beer yeah which is kind of funny but if you make it all day you kind of want to go home and you know drink something different so yeah i heard that the ceo of zappos only has four pairs of shoes <laughs> he's kind of like the same thing like he could be selling shoes socks beer probably he just he's obsessed with customer service and that's why mm-hmm. like, that's why zappos is how it is but yeah yeah he has four pairs of shoes no and i i think again beer to me has been is i love beer i yeah. really do and i i mean i see things around the world i taste things i I see landscapes and I think of beers I can make. Like it really is this creative outlet for me. But at the same time, I, my mind also just starting a brewery yeah. helped me start to think about how can you monetize an idea? How do you make products? How do you think about a consumer and what you could make for them? Or how do you solve problems for people? And yeah. maybe it's just, I'm going to get them a local beer, which is what mine started as. But it's so much fun to just think about the world now from a standpoint of, what problems out there can I solve or what experiences can I make better for people? Yeah. Love that. Do people come to you with like corny jokes about, you know, it's got to be the best job in the world. And it, like, I mean, I'm sure there's no shortage. Only five but, or six times a day. That's yeah, I know. Yeah. Exactly. So you probably respond to them very cordially and whatever, but like you have to worry about like growing a successful business and you have employees, you have bills to pay. Like, what would you say to those people candidly? <laughs> You just say, want to like, I'd say nobody wants to hear about your bad day at the brewery. That's just, it's just a non-starter, which yeah. I always think is funny. Like, oh, tell me how bad it is over there. Like, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it, just like any business, you know, I think once you start to turn something to business, even if it's a yeah. passion project, it changes. And maybe it's, you know, and I think one of the most fun words for me is amateur. And it was actually Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia in the front of one of the little catalogs I get once a month had this wonderful write-up that I, I love. And he talked about how he was an amateur. And yeah. he said, if you looked at the Patagonia line of clothing, there's a little bit of climbing stuff, and there's some fly fishing stuff, and there's some trail running stuff. And his point in it was that he was what he called the 80% man. 
And he said, if you want to become the 100% man and be the best climber or just be the best downhill skier, it takes you to focus all your effort and attention on it. And it changes it. You're a professional. But to be an amateur, you know, the word means, you know, to, to love. You're doing it for the love of something. Yeah. And so what is what has been so fascinating for me is that beer was something I loved and it's become a profession and it's different. It's no longer that like, oh, this is just fun. I can't drink a beer. And I love drinking beers and assessing them and doing all those things. But what I've also come through this experience to really cherish are the things that I'm an amateur at. And I want to leave myself as being an amateur of so many things where I'm the 80% man. I get dabble in this, I dabble in that. And I'm never going to be the best at it, but I enjoy it. And I think it's a, it's a neat place to try to be in life. How and do you keep it fun? How do you? Yeah. Don't make it into a profession. Don't make it into a job. And I, I think as soon as you start to figure out how to monetize something, it's a job at that point. And it's, it's always interesting to me when I hear people, I feel like it's a very common refrain when you hear billionaires say, you know, if you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. And yeah. I don't. I haven't felt that yet. Maybe I'm I'm doing something wrong or I'm on the wrong path. But, you know, like work is work. And while I I love what I do, I mean, I truly am so blessed to be able to do this. And it's it's so fulfilling for me. But it's also work. And there's, there's plenty of days of it's hard. And there's hard decisions to make, you know, that impact people's lives. Particularly these last few months with the COVID stuff and everything happening in the world right now. Like It is a hard time to be a business owner, and uh, I love it. What does taking it to the next level look like? So you have a tap room that's going up Mm -hmm. soon. Are we allowed to talk about the documentary? Sure. I guess I would say that... I don't know. Are we, Ben? I had to look and see. Let's see. Are we good? Yeah. Okay, we're getting the thumbs up. Yeah. I think what I'm excited about kind of going into the future is trying to look at how does Southern Pines Brewing Company continue to be relevant? And what was so fascinating to me is thinking about the natural progression of an industry. And if you look at the craft beer industry right now and what's been happening, you know, boy, we went from, again, 40-some breweries in the 70s to over 8,000 now. And to know where is this industry going and where where is it headed? And I'm incredibly excited for the opportunity to try to uh, focus on important markets for us and also be able to be relevant in this and realize that if I continue to just do what I was doing yesterday, I'll probably fail. If I try to play a efficiency game, we're a small little craft brewery, and there's no way I'll beat a bunch of the breweries in North Carolina, let alone the country, that are many, many, many times larger than me in an efficiency game. For me, what I'm really excited about is also looking at how do we pivot this brand, keep doing what we're doing, and, and support the customer base we have in those people, but also say, how do we do something just neat and innovative in an industry full of people doing fascinating, innovative stuff. And so kind of just starting out on this project and I'm incredibly excited about it. We've been ordering a bunch of equipment and Julia here is our head of quality assurance. She has her PhD in marine microbiology, went to UC Davis, University of San Diego, just a super smart person. And to have her here right now is amazing. And so work, being able to talk to someone like Ben and say, hey, here's an idea of something that I wanna do And while the product is cool, I think the story of it is even better. And that story is what's so important. So we're on the early stages of starting to put together uh, what I hope will become some form of documentary, whether it's a 
podcast, a series, a feature, what it may become, but we'll see. Yeah, but. Ben already works on a podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> on this one. <laughs> so he's... He's, he's, got, he's got that box checked. So I'm incredibly excited on working with Ben on getting in the filming and recording equipment in here. And yeah. I have no idea where this will take us. And, and it's honestly, I've, I know as much about this as I did when I thought starting a brewery would be fun. And I'm quickly realizing this is as complex of an undertaking or more so than starting a business to, to go down that road and to do it well. And I'm excited about it. Like it yeah. It's, you know, it's incredibly excited. All right. I know for sure 120 people will listen to this episode. My mom will twice, very, at least. So. Oh, well, there are 120 <laughs> very specific people that we know will listen to the episode yeah. from, 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 uh, from our business school class. Exactly. And your mom, that's always good. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for coming down and asking me to do this. It's super exciting. Well, I was in town, you know. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's I, part of opportunity. So. Yeah. Drove, drove 10 hours to record right. this podcast. I had no. gear, so it wasn't a total loss. So. No, it was okay. great because we had, to, we had to take advantage of the time, and you were very gracious to grant us the space to do that. <laughs> and then it was cool sitting in here and just kind of like looking around the office. Very raw. This is very That's SF just, team room-esque. Like, exactly. Plywood Mem- walls, no windows. Memorabilia up. Shelves that you put in yourself, I'm guessing. Yeah, yep. This desk came from Camp McCall. Dug it out of the trash. Really? Yep. Nice. Oh, so, yeah, it's very very much a <laughs> team Those, room concept. We've been on for like two hours. That's good. All right, Ben, you, uh, you need? Awesome. That's a wrap. Good? Okay. Cool. All right. We're good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thank You Now What, the podcast about life after service. You know, after finishing recording, Mike and I continued to chat for about an hour when we were hanging out at his brewery. I realized that we forgot to deliberately plug his business, so uh, some resources if you want to check them out, go to southernpinesbrewing.com. You can also see them on Instagram, at southernpinesbrewing, or Twitter, at sopinesbrewing. If you're ever in North Carolina, you can get your hands on some of their beers. I would encourage you to do that. And if you're ever in the Sand Hills region, Fort Bragg, Fayetteville, Pinehurst, Raleigh, uh, you should go and visit their taproom. There's one question I forgot to ask Mike that I wanted to, but uh, it was around whether he was you know, the same person or a different person after serving. He said, it's not the beret that makes the man, but the man that makes the beret. He then pulled out a book to find a quote for me, and he started reading, Decline starts with the replacement of dreams with memories and ends with the replacement of memories with other memories. So, after hearing Micah's story, just ask yourself if you want to spend more time focusing on the past or focusing on the future. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the podcast. On our next episode, we're going to talk to Nate Spearing. Nate is a former teammate and close personal friend of mine. We're going to talk about tapping into his family roots to start a home remodeling and general contracting business. We're also going to talk about the importance of faith, family, and community for him during life after service. It'll be good. Thanks.